This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is I'm so sick and tired of these school shootings. It's so tragic. This story in Uvalde, all these small children getting killed. It seems like we have this epidemic of mass shootings and we can't seem to bring people together to do something because everybody wants to politicize the situation and everyone wants to take advantage of people suffering in order to push their political agendas instead of taking steps that we can do in a bipartisan way to improve the situation. It, Americans are frustrated. They're right to be so. Okay, so let me ask you a question. And I think you and I, like on a couple of other issues, don't exactly see eye to eye on this. If we had a better set of politicians leading this country, if we had more seriousness and less partisanship, what would people do? So here's the thing. We need to hold two things in our hand at the same time. One, the school shootings are a disgrace. We need to protect our kids. And two, Americans have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms that can't be infringed. We need to be able to find a way to protect kids and protect schools while also protecting the Second Amendment rights of millions of law-abiding Americans who don't participate in school shootings, who are responsible gun owners, which is the vast, vast, vast majority of people who owns guns in these countries. There's some effort to do this on Capitol Hill, and we'll see if anything comes of it. But you know, there's talk about creating incentives for states to pass red flag laws. There's talk about spending money to improve background checks, though, as our guest uh, coming up points out, that won't do a lot for school shootings. More money for mental health. We're having a mental health crisis in this country with kids that was highly exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. And then I would say improving school security. You know, I, I don't understand how here in Alexandria, Virginia, where I live, the courthouse down the street, local courthouse run by the, by the Alexandria city government is completely secure. You walk in there, there's police officers, there's a magnetometer. You can't just walk in there with a gun. <laughs> How can we secure a local courthouse, but we can't secure our schools? Wait a minute. Hang on. Hang on a second. You have four kids in school. Do you mean to tell me that you want your children to go to a school that is secured like a federal courthouse? You know what? If we have school shootings going on in the scale that we have now, then maybe, yeah, we do. Ben Shapiro, who, as you know, is an Orthodox Jew, he pointed out the other day that Jewish schools have been doing this for years because of anti-Semitic violence. You can't just walk into a Jewish school with a gun. A lot of these schools already are doing it on their own with private security. After 9-11, it used to be you could just walk through airport security with almost anything. And then 9-11 happened and all of a sudden we've locked it down and hardened our airports. Yes, there should be security. There should be one entrance into the school and there should be uh, police at every school protecting that school and making sure that nobody comes in who isn't supposed to be there. Absolutely. I'm not sure that I want to be in a country where you have to have security at every school. You, you may be right, but in any case, that is addressing... What's it like in Israel, Danny? Let me finish here and then I'll t talk about Israel. But I think you're talking about addressing a symptom rather than the cause. And while I agree with you, obviously, about the mental health crisis that I think is going on, I also think that there is a crisis of violence as well. And, and the data backs us up on that. Um, what do they do in Israel? You know, I haven't gone to elementary school in Israel. Israel has obviously an enormous number of guns that are in the hands of young people who are drafted into the military at the age of 18, women for two, men for three years. So you do see an enormous number of guns. You don't see the violence. And this is one of the things that we talk about with our guests as well. Americans don't need guns. More Americans, as I, I quoted uh, in our interview, more Americans kill people with their hands than are killed by so-called assault rifles. But we're still killing people at a rate that is just unconscionable. 
I wish I could agree with you that a good bipartisan attitude would mitigate the problem. I think there's something deeper going on. We try to get at it. I'm not going to satisfy our listeners by saying that I know what the silver bullet is here, but I do think that ease of access for an 18-year-old boy to buy two very expensive multi-thousand dollar weapons and then go and shoot up a school indicates a system that is in very drastic need of repair. Sure. I mean, I think there are things that can be done to improve the background check system. But of course, you know, there is a background check system that is quite effective. But the reason why it doesn't help with school shootings is because most school shootings are done by teenagers who don't have a criminal record. And most of them, by the way, didn't buy a gun, didn't go into a store and buy a gun. They took them from their parents, so they got them in some other ways. 77% of school shootings are done with handguns. No one in the world is talking about seriously banning handguns because you can't do that constitutionally. So we have a situation where we have a mental health crisis, an epidemic of violence. And by the way, it's not just school shootings and it's not just like this guy who walked into the hospital in Tulsa every day on the streets of Chicago. Not just Chicago. (laughs) Not just Chicago. We're talking about an epidemic of crime in big cities. We're talking about... Last year, last year, Danny, 12 American cities broke all-time homicide records uh, last year. I was just about Uh, to add Baltimore and New York and yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have an epidemic of violence. If you really want to deal with gun violence, one, stop defunding the police. (laughs) That would help. Uh, Most of these major cities where we've seen this outbreak of violence in the last year, it's because they cut police funding. Hire prosecutors who actually, when the police do arrest somebody, actually put them in jail as opposed to releasing them. You know, when, when you get outside of the narrow window of school shootings and mass shootings, which are the exception, not the rule, in terms of the gun deaths in this country. There are a lot of things that we can do that are not being done in these cities that are causing the violence to unfold. Let me ask you another question. You know, I'm still very ambivalent on the arguments that are made in defense of assault rifles. Yes, I know an AR-15 that doesn't stand for assault rifle, but I'm ambivalent about this. So hunters make the argument that they need access to these weapons that are able to take a magazine with a high number of shots in them, which is really what we're talking about, in fact, when we want to talk in the layman's way you know, Danny Plutka, who does not own a gun and wants to talk about it. What we're really talking about is the ability to fire off a large number of shots in a row with some speed without having to reload. And they make the argument that in order to shoot big game, deer, boar, uh, you really do actually need to uh, be able to shoot it and kill it a bunch of times. Otherwise, you run the risk that you are going to be killed. And I think, you know, setting aside the question of people who don't approve of blood sport, if you're a hunter and you need a kind of weapon like that, shouldn't you maybe have to prove that you're a hunter and have the bona fides of a hunter? Do you think that some inner city guy who doesn't have an arrest record should be allowed to walk in and say, I need a rifle that's only necessary for hunting? Oh, yeah, I've never hunted in my life, but who cares? Second Amendment. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, the Second Amendment is not to protect hunting. I know, I know. Uh, Hunting wasn't even a thing. I know. The hunting wasn't a thing in in colonial times. The Second Amendment is self-defense. And so hunting is not the issue. Do you need an assault rifle to defend yourself? Sure. I I think a lot of people feel they do. If you're in a dangerous neighborhood and home invasion, I remember watching uh, during, you know, I'm I'm aging myself now, but I remember during the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, where these store owners were standing in front of their stores with AR-15s protecting their stores. And they were the only ones who didn't have their livelihoods destroyed and their lives taken. Yes, you don't need a BB gun to protect yourself. You need an actual weapon that can do the job. And second of all, we need to keep in mind This is a constitutional right. This is not something that's up for debate. The Constitution says, and I'm going to quote it here, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, period. Now, a lot of people don't understand what that means. They point to that well-regulated militia line. At the time of our founders, there was no regulatory state. It didn't exist. The term regulated didn't mean government controlled or government regulated. It meant well-equipped, well-trained, ready. And then the Militia Act of 1792 defines the militia as, and this is what it said, said, all able-bodied men aged 18 to 49. So in colloquial terms, a well-regulated militia means a well-armed population being necessary to the security of the free state. The first law passed gun legislation ever passed by Congress in 1792, the Militia Act, 
didn't restrict gun ownership. It required every able-bodied male, 18 to 49, to own a flintlock musket and 20 rounds of ammunition. So the first gun control legislation we had required every American to own a gun. So the history of this is not hunting. The history of this is not putting caveats on the right to keep and bear arms. Our founders believed that the right to keep and bear arms was fundamental, not just even to personal security, but to the security of a free state. It was a check on tyranny. First thing tyrannical regimes do is take away people's guns. So it's a guarantee of freedom. Dude, who is going to be who is going to be the tyrannical regime you're envisioning that's going to be taking away people's guns in Washington DC? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. No, it, just just it, because on. just because we're not in a situation now where uh, we're on the verge of having a uh, ha- well, I mean, first of all, everybody said we just had an insurrection in the Capitol. Uh, so there is so you know, we're, we're Well, I we're, noticed it wasn't beaten off by people with AR15s. It was committed by people who own guns, not beaten off by people civilians who own guns. So that's number it's 1. It's a fundamental freedom. Number Danny. 2. Number 2. I get it. And I want to talk about that and we'll talk about that after our interview, but I want to note something that irritates me. I want to be persuaded here. My general attitude is, as you know, very much sort of with the Constitution, with law and order, with people's freedoms. What I notice is whenever I ask a hard question, people go to the low-hanging fruit. In other words, I talk about the fact that these guns are really necessary for hunting, and you say this isn't about hunting. All right, fair enough. That's not low-hanging fruit. Well, how is that low-hanging fruit? Because that is not the question I was asking you. I was asking you, isn't there... Your question was, was based on a wrong premise, which is the purpose of the Second Amendment is to protect my right to hunt. It's not. <laughs> I did not say that. I said that those are the people who are arguing that they need those weapons. You brought in the question of store owners. My attitude is if the police can't do their job and protect store owners such that they need AR-15 standing out front, we've got bigger problems than the Second Amendment. But that's a different issue. Thank God we've got the Second Amendment because they're not doing their job and they're not protecting because they're being defunded in cities across the country and because the prosecutors don't have their back. They weren't defunded in L.A. during the Rodney King riots. Oh, not during Rodney King, but the the police have been defunded in L.A. They've they've cut a billion dollars from the police budget in New York City. Yes. Uh, And look at it now. So, I mean, yes, people have a right to defend themselves. Okay, well, again, I don't think that you addressed my question, but you and I can fight that off offline because I'm willing to bet we're going to strain the patience of our (laughs) listeners. Plus, we've got a great interview with Jim Garrity. It's the first time he's joining us. He is the senior political correspondent of National Review. He's a blogger. He writes their morning jolt newsletter, which after the Wall Street Journal is the first thing I read every morning. Uh, He has an awesome podcast himself called Three Martini Lunch, and we had an equally lively conversation with him. Here's our interview. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. So you've written a lot of good stuff on the gun control debate, and you had a really interesting piece called The Hard Truth About Background Checks. And you pointed out that the shooter in Uvalde didn't have a criminal record. A lot of the people who are committing these mass shootings are young people, especially in schools, who don't have criminal records. How would background checks have any impact on stopping these kinds of incidents from happening? Well, you know, in, in the particular case of the Uvalde shooting, you have a gunman who had just turned 18, who did not have a criminal record. Now I'm going to, in a minute or two, I'll explain how he probably should have had a criminal record. But there was nothing in the system. He had never been involuntary committed there, uh, or for a psychological evaluation or, or anything like that. So when you go to purchase a gun, I, I know I've, there's been this perception Uh, across much of the country, particularly in blue parts of the country, that think that you just go to the store, buy the gun, and everything's fine. And that is not actually how it works. You have to have your information plugged. If you're going to a federally licensed firearms dealer, which is just about every gun shop in America, not buying a gun from your neighbor or not buying a gun from somebody, you know, a private exchange between two people. If you're going to a gun store and you want to buy a gun, you have to pass a background check. Your information is punched into the National Instant Check System, the NICS. And that, you know, looks for two things, basically. Criminal record, which bars you from purchasing a firearm. Are you a criminal felon? And the other one is anything in mental health that would uh, suggest that you are, basically a court has ruled you're not allowed to hold a firearm. Uh, Now, a lot of states, it's, you know, generally have you been involuntarily committed? It's not. Have you seen a therapist? It's not, have you had 
any kind of mental treatment? Generally, is it something that has made, you know, someone in the mental health field to conclude that you are a threat to yourself or to others? The shooter in Uvalde had just turned 18. I had, you know, when I first saw this news, one of the things that jumped out at me was that he had apparently not one, but two variations of the AR-15 that ran anywhere, depending on where you're shopping. Uh, But generally, it's like at least 1,000, probably close to 1,500, and in some cases can go past $2,000. And so I'm scratching my head and wondering, how the heck does an 18-year-old kid afford effectively up to $4,000 worth of guns and 350 rounds, and he had the vest for a bulletproof vest, but not the armor plates that go inside there. Well, apparently the, the company that sells them has a layaway plan. So you don't need all of the money at front. And I think there are a whole bunch of us who look at that and say, that does not necessarily seem like the wisest policy. That sounds like an op- way to put guns into the hands of people who really can't afford them, but who aren't going to worry about paying them because they plan on doing something terrible and killing lots of people. Now, I mentioned before that he probably should have had a criminal record. I point out these are anecdotes and these are accounts coming from his classmates, former friends, people who knew the shooter. Generally, they're teenagers. We know teenagers may exaggerate. So I'm operating on the assumption that these anecdotes are accurate. If somebody wanted to dispute them, I could understand that. But one of the accounts was he was running around shooting people with a BB gun. Now, obviously, BB guns are legal to purchase if you're a teenager. However, shooting someone with a BB gun is indeed a crime. That is assault. And under Texas law, I've I've looked up and was kind of surprised to learn. Uh, Shooting someone with a BB gun, a BB gun can be treated as a deadly weapon under Texas law because it is intent to harm. So had someone who had been involved in that, witnessed that, a victim of that, gone to the police, reported it, and pressed charges against the shooter, he would not have been allowed to purchase a gun. Probably heard also the accounts of teenage girls saying he had threatened to rape them. A terroristic threat under Texas law is a felony and is a threat to basically cause harm to someone. I'm not a lawyer, but that looks to me like a slam dunk case. You may have seen the New York Post story and that god awful picture that they thankfully, you know, blurred out part of that had him apparently he killed a bunch of cats. Uh, Now, lots of people know torturing and killing animals is one of those giant flashing red neon signs of you're dealing with a very dangerous personality and someone who is building up to taking a human life. Between that, other anecdotes, descriptions of him cutting his own face and things like that, all of that strikes to me, if not a slam dunk for involuntary commitment for possibility of being a a threat to himself or others, then it looks like it would be a, a strong case. None of that happened in any of these cases. Now, I don't necessarily want this to turn into something that's perceived as blaming the victim, but I do think part of the problem as we see these, there's two aspects of it. The first is that If you look at the mass shootings going back to the 1960s, the Department of Justice just earlier this year completed this massive study. And they basically said that in addition to happening with more frequency, it's not just the media hype, it's not just media coverage, this really is happening more often. The other intriguing change has been you're seeing fewer cases of workplace violence and more cases of school violence. And as you think about it, all of us, I think, are old enough to remember the rather crass term going postal, right? And this perception of, ah, Postal workers were always the ones who were getting upset with work, getting a gun and coming back and shooting people and stuff like that. Thankfully, it seems like we have a little less of that. I suspect that is partially the national instant check system working. If you have a criminal background or if you have some mental health issue, it's, you know, impossible for you to legally purchase a firearm. Oh, by the way, if you lie on your application, that too is a felony. I'd really like to see President Biden come out and say everyone who lies on their application for a gun should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, but maybe he doesn't want to put his son in jail. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. We're both big fans of your three martini lunch and three martini lunches in general. Uh, So this is a really fraught conversation because we tend not to have it in normal times. We tend to have it in the wake of some just vile tragedy, Sandy Hook, Uvalde, and there are too many of these things happening. I think we can divide it up in a bunch of different ways. And I very much want to ask you to explain not just to me, but to our listeners about the whole question of AR-15s and why there are a lot of misunderstandings about them. But first, let me just talk to you about this enforcement problem. So a lot of the laws that are necessary are on the books. They just are, right? You rattled them off just now, and there are actually additional laws 
precluding certain people from buying weapons. We have two sets of problems. One, the laws aren't enforced. And two, most people who commit crimes, not mass shootings necessarily, but the kind of one-off crimes with guns, are people who do not get them from legitimate gun shops where they would be undergoing a background check. How do we start to resolve some of those problems? And let me put a little asterisk there in the further to Mark's point of me rambling on. My asterisk is when you face up to children or people who are in bad circumstances, an involuntary commitment or charging them with a felony for what may actually be a minor infraction like a BB gun can ruin their life. So, you know, this is sort of what we see, right? This is what we see with district's attorney in places like New York and in places like San Francisco. They don't want to ruin people's lives, so they let them walk. Help us untangle some of that in a way that's productive and creative. I should point out that DOJ report said that most of the school shooters, I think about 70% over the last X number of years, had not purchased firearms at all and had effectively, generally there were teenagers who had stolen their parents. And so that is an entirely separate question. In most of these cases, if you have a child in your house, I think at minimum you want to have a safety lock. I don't know if I, because a lot of law, a lot of states have said, well, we want to pass laws making it mandatory. And the problem is, you know, a law is only as good as its enforcement. And I don't, for the first question is how do you enforce it? And, you know, do you have the police coming around to people's houses, checking to see that they're, the only way you're going to enforce it is after the fact. And at that point, it doesn't do any good. I think you have a much better chance if responsible gun owners spread the message amongst themselves. If you have a teenager in the house, you probably want that firearm you know, locked up and or keep the, the weapons, uh, keep the ammunition separate. You know, if you want to have something by your bedside table in case, you know, somebody uh, breaks in in the middle of the night or something like that and you want quick access, I can understand that. But uh, I think it's also a clear sign if you have a troubled teenager at home. If you have someone, and let's say, and I guess that's what's excruciating about so many of these cases is that usually there's a consistent run-up of pattern. There was some study that found a disturbing number of the school shooters since 1999 have taken, like a, most people said, an unhealthy and sustained interest in the Columbine shootings. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you have a teenager, first, I'm sorry, I relate. Second of all, if you're a te- if you have a teenager and they're troubled, I, I don't necessarily relate to that, but... You know, that is probably if your child is really interested in the Columbine shootings, you should have that person in front of a therapist immediately. That is a really glaring warning sign based on past history. And I do kind of wonder, and this is getting a little kind of to the bigger picture philosophical thing, whether Columbine was this god awful near demonic ideation of this, because we've always had troubled teenagers. We've always had kids who felt like outsiders. We've always had kids who've been picked on. We've always, you know, that by itself is not a new phenomenon in our life. It's possible social media exacerbates this. It's possible that the shutdowns probably were not good for teen mental. Actually, I think we know that the shutdowns were not good for teen mental health, but we always had this. And I think Columbine kind of planted this seed of an idea that if you feel sufficiently angry at the world, if you feel upset, if you feel like your classmates pick on you or mean or don't understand, whatever, well, well, what you do is you take a gun and you shoot up the place. And it's kind of terrifying how much this has turned into a playbook for, for troubled people. And oh, by the way, you know, since the Uvalde shooting, we have seen a really uncomfortable, you know, horrible number of, uh, you know, it, not mass shootings on the scale of Uvalde, but of, you know, there was that nut job who decided was upset with his doctor and went back with a gun just a couple of days ago. I, I do wonder if there is a, not just a copycat effect, but intense coverage of this. And look, this is big news. There's nobody who's saying you shouldn't cover something as awful as the murder of 19 kids in a school. But whether the intense discussion of it makes somebody else say, well, that's what I should do. You know, this this nutty, utterly illogical and, and morally debased idea. That's how you're supposed to do there. Uh, as usual, I've gotten very far afield from the topic. So, but anyway, so the first thing is that most teens steal guns from their parents. That is the first problem there. So anything you do regarding the restriction on the sale of firearms isn't going to do much of a solution there. The other thing is the, the, the common response we've seen since Uvalde And from a lot of people who I don't think are bad people, I don't think are gun grabbers, I don't think are, you know, quiet fascists or something like that. Basically, well, we need to tighten up background checks. 
And I always kind of say, okay, but what does that mean, right? Because one of the things, you know, we, uh, there were a variety of threatening messages from the Uvalde shooter on social media. Your average gun dealer is not going to go through the social media feeds of a potential buyer, right? That, you know, basically the question is, the idea is to take something that is not necessarily going to the criminal justice system and get that put into the criminal justice system when he makes an online threat or when he posts pictures of himself torturing cats and, and stuff like that. I don't want to put this too much on the teenagers. I think it's a lot to ask of teenagers to go to the cops and say, you know, I have a classmate who's acting really weird, or I have a classmate who's, you know, or a girl who's on social media and say, I got this message from this guy who said he's going to rape me. That's a lot to ask of people. Other adults in the community, teachers and neighbors and folks like that, well, I kind of do think if you do see behavior that you think is really troubling and, and points to a kid who is, you know, a ticking time bomb, then I think you do have an obligation to go to the police. And I do fear that we've created something of a vicious cycle that people don't think it's going to make a difference. They've had too many stories of other warning signs and red flags that were ignored by police forces. So they, you know, say, well, what's the use of reporting? It's not going to make any difference. So they don't report it. So we have another school shooting. And then all these people come forward and share these stories of the bad behavior and odd behavior that seem like red flags. And people say, ah, why didn't somebody do something? So Ideally, like you know, how do we how do we really get you know the, the next teenager out there who's angry at the world? Ideally, somebody is going to the cops and saying, you know, this person has made these comments about shooting up the school, or this person is torturing animals, or this person is running around with a BB gun trying to shoot people, and that's getting them into the criminal justice system. And yeah, I really, there are a lot of DAs who don't like you know, who don't like who don't want to wreck a kid's life for the rest of their life. Okay, how about we you know not have them able to purchase a firearm for some period of time? When my former colleague and good friend David French talks about these red flag laws, I think he recognizes there's potential for abuse if anybody can say to anybody else that person shouldn't be able to own a gun. So he wants this adjudicated before a judge. He wants this to be, you have to have clear evidence that this person is a potential threat to themselves or others. There has to be an appeals process and it cannot be indefinite. There's got to be some limited time period that for the, you know, they're, they take away their guns and they're not allowed to purchase new ones for you decide six months, you decide a year, you decide something. Because some people have very bad mental problems and then they work through them and either through medication or something else, they, they become regular normal people. And we don't necessarily want to ban somebody from owning a gun for the rest of their life because they went through some mental troubles at some point in their life. Or to see military. If you got military people who have PTSD, you don't want them to not go and get help because they're afraid that it could it could bring into question their ability to keep and bear arms. Uh, yeah. And, you know, by the way, the other common argument we've heard since then Basically, across the country, it's impossible to own a handgun if you are under 21 years of age. So a lot of people looked at this 18-year-old shooter and said, well, the answer is we should raise the age to purchase a firearm to 21. I can see the argument for that. I, I think it's safe to say that people have recognized that my, you know, having two sons, and my wife likes to remind me that apparently the male brain does not fully develop until 24 or 25. And she knew me back when I was 18. She says, she, that's, I'm, I'm living proof of that, that it took me a while to mature and all that stuff. So the idea that, you know, someone is less likely to do something rash and angry and fly off the handle and do something dangerous and stupid with a gun, that they're less likely to do at age 21 than age 18. Okay, I can see that argument. The problem is that most 18, 19, 20-year-olds really aren't our problem. And oh, by the way, Nobody in America puts more guns in the hands of 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and 20-year-olds than the Pentagon. You know, it'd be kind of ironic to say, you guys can't own guns. You're dangerous. Unless you join the army, then we're going to give you one. Go shoot somebody over there. You know, I think most people would recognize there's an odd contradiction that, yes, people are trained in the military and all that kind of stuff. But I think... It's a well-regulated militia. Right? You know, so, <laughs> so the next question is, like, you know, if you're in the military, are you excluded from that? Are you allowed to take your guns off base? And stuff like that? So like, you know, this, this would create this whole bunch of thorny questions. I Apparently, also, um, one of the appeals court struck down a California law that was going to raise the age to purchase a gun to 21. New York's legislature says they want to do something similar. I don't know if that's going to pass Supreme Court muster. I think at the heart of it, our problem is this very small minority of 18, 19, 20-year-old, you know, angry teenagers who I think lots of people would say, okay, should not own a gun, should not be allowed to purchase a gun. They are a danger to themselves or others. So the question is, how do we get those people into the system rather than enacting some new sweeping ban on gun ownership? Because one, it probably violates the Second Amendment, and two... At minimum, you're going to have an extraordinarily angry backlash that will probably push for the repeal of those laws.
So, Jim, you mentioned that if you have a teenager who's obsessed with Columbine, you should get them into therapy immediately, right? I am sure that there are lots of angry teenagers who come from you know, stable homes with parents who are present and care about them and are involved. They, for whatever reason, have these mental health issues that their parents are desperately trying to deal with. But a lot of them don't. A lot of them are coming from broken homes and abusive parents and absent parents. And that's one of the sources of their rage. I don't know what the situation was at home for the Uvalde shooter, but it doesn't sound like, you know, there were tons of warning signs and nobody caught them. Like, you know, how can the parents be the first line of defense if they're not there? Well, actually, no, I mean, we've heard of the home life, the Uvalde shooter, very little of it was good. And I, I think you, you put a finger on a problem here. And then, you know, in every case of someone being committed, it's because someone who cares about them has seen the signs that they are mentally having really serious problems and felt enough of a need to do something about it. In every successful application of a red flag law, sometimes it is a spouse or former spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend or something like that. To do that, you have to care about that person. And in the case of these very isolated, angry young men, they don't feel like anyone cares about them. And there certainly doesn't seem to be anyone in their lives watching them closely enough. And or the next question, maybe they do care about them, but they don't know how to navigate the process of going to your local county or or police officials and saying, I think this person is a danger to themselves. How do we enact a red flag law? How do we get them to take away their firearms? I, I suppose we kind of get to this chicken and egg sort of situation that if we had more caring communities... Yes, it would be easier to make sure that angry young men didn't get their hands on firearms. We'd also probably have less angry young men. These people would probably feel cared about and wouldn't feel this, you know, compulsion to do these terrible things. So I I grant you, that is a difficult catch-22. I want people to get into the habit of being more aware of the actions of the people around them. And I I also kind of wonder, no one has seen anything that indicates that this particular shooter... The bad behavior goes back years. So I don't want to say, oh, well, this is because of the pandemic or something like that. I do, having said that, there are just endless piles of data indicating that the country's teenagers, this pandemic was really rough on them. Not being in school was really rough on them. Not being able to see their friends and, and all of that. The isolation, the disruption of normal things that they enjoy, like athletics and arts programs and, and all that kind of stuff. That really took a toll on the country's teenagers. And I, I kind of cannot help but wonder if, you know, let's say there's a spectrum of how everybody's doing. Everybody's like one or two rungs lower than they were brewing before the pandemic. So the number of teenagers who probably were doing, eh, they had some problems, but we're going to get through it okay, probably have gone down a bit uh, and maybe in a deeper, darker, more troubled place than they otherwise would have been. Now, life is generally getting back to normal bit by bit, piece by piece, but there's uh, some damage done. I was just talking to a counselor who said, Almost every teenager she sees is two years behind socially and emotionally than they were that they ordinarily would be. So if you got a 16-year-old, emotionally they're more like a 14-year-old these days. If you got a 14-year-old, they're more like a 12-year-old these days. I think even in the best of households, that's a really big challenge. And obviously, as you alluded there, Mark, there's a lot of households that are not in the best of circumstances to be in. Jim, a National Review has written a lot, and you have written a lot about AR-15s. Now, that is not the only gun of its kind that is able to be sold in America, but it is a weapon of choice for a lot of bad guys, and there is a certain cult around it that makes people want to buy it. Would you please explain, as you have many times, and I apologize, uh, explain to our listeners and to me why the government is not going to be solving the problem by much more aggressively regulating AR-15s. So the simplest way of describing it is to say, so first of all, before I go any further, AR is not short for assault rifle, and AR-15 is not necessarily an assault rifle. Armalite, right, I believe is the, uh, the what the abbreviation is for. And the gist is that It is popular. Yes, it looks like a military gun. The discussion around guns would be greatly helped if those who advocate for gun control had a little more familiarity about the terminology and what describes things. Because I have a feeling that almost every all-black, you know, two-handed rifle that looks like the M16 used by the military is what people think is an AR-15. One, that's not necessarily the case. And the second thing is, is that I keep hearing people saying, well, we need to ban automatic weapons. Automatic weapons are banned. Actually, okay, they're almost all banned. If you had one before the ban in the 1980s, you were allowed to keep that. It was grandfathered in, but I think there's something like 300 across the country or something like that. There's an exceptionally small number. 
I got to fire one of them when I went to the NRA range a couple of years back. Uh, it's on YouTube. I look like I look ridiculous. Uh, everyone can go enjoy that. But in other words, automatic weapons are already off the streets. But what is an automatic weapon? An automatic weapon is you pull back the trigger and it just keeps firing. Boom, 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 boom. Like, you know, that's, that's both, you know, that is a quote unquote weapon of war. And that is the one that, you know, when you're targeting the Taliban or, or Al Qaeda or ISIS or something like that, you need a lot of rounds going at the target in a short period of time. I suspect, by the way, one of the factors in the increasing popularity of the AR-15 is it is a for sale on the civilian market, and is probably most similar to the guns that those who were in the military were using. Has some key distinctions. It is not an automatic weapon. It's a semi-automatic weapon, which means you pull back the trigger, one round comes out. You may remember a couple of years back after Las Vegas, there was a controversy about the bump stock. And the idea was the bump stock, when you're, when you're firing a gun, the discharge of the round has this big, you know, kinetic reaction, almost a small explosion, mm-hmm. right? That's sending the bullet down the rifle, towards the target. And it has this pull kinetic and has kickback. And anybody who's ever gone to a firing range can tell you, if you have one and you're using a rifle, you're going to feel that in your shoulder. If you have a handgun, you're going to feel it in your hands and your wrists. You know, if you're not familiar with this, you know, this, this, all of this kinetic motion, the bump stock was something you attach to it to basically use that kickback to get it to the position where it's firing, where it's back to like pulling the trigger again. So the bump stock was seen as sort of a workaround, the limitation on an automatic rifle. That was something that was banned. It was not used in the Uvalde shooting. And I kind of feel like, you know, the, when people say, oh, we should ban automatic weapons, both are already banned. Should we ban semiotic weapons? Well, then you're banning almost every rifle that's on the market. Now, my colleague, Kevin Williamson, writes something really useful. There's a perception, I think, that because AR-15s look bigger and scarier and they're all black, there's this perception that they're badder, they're, they're worse, they're more dangerous or something like that compared to, say, a hunting rifle. And pro-gun control politicians usually love to say, well, I still believe in hunting. Those of us who believe in the Second Amendment are con- fond of pointing out the Second Amendment does not mention hunting. Actually, somebody pointed out that the concept of hunting as we know it today really wasn't out there in the colonies or, or back in the, the American Revolutionary and formation of the Constitution. The Second Amendment's purpose for your right to self-defense. I think there's this kind of perception about hunting rifles. Maybe people grew up with them at their grandfather's cabin or something like that. There's this like rustic Americana image, right? This idea that if you, uh, it's got wood in it, so it can't be that dangerous. It's natural. It's artisan. It's organic, right? It's, you know, this kind of rifle isn't as bad. <laughs> I need an organic weapon. <laughs> right? You know, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's plucked. Oat milk. Plucked from the, the shotgun trees out in Italy or something. You know? And what's, what Kevin is fond of pointing out is that if you want to take down a deer or a moose up in the Northern Territories or something, you know, you want a lot of kinetic power going through that. No hunter wants to wound a deer and then let it, you know, run off or something like that. So this idea that the AR is more dangerous because it it's deadlier, right? Or it's a bigger round or it fires with more velocity or something like that. First of all, I got to tell you, I'm not eager to get shot with any kind of round or any kind of velocity. So I don't, the idea that one kind of getting shot is worse than another one, I'm, I'm not 100% con- convinced on. But the more thing is that the idea is that if you wanted to ban only powerful weapons, well, all kinds of rifles that are seen as only as hunting are powerful weapons. So the idea, I think what it is basically comes down to, and a lot of folks in the Second Amendment community point out, when you ask a gun control person to describe what kind of guns they find most dangerous, they tend to describe the aesthetics. They tend to describe the way it looks. And that's a really bad way of trying to regulate a firearm. Because the way a gun looks very rarely has much to do with what actually the amount of damage it can do. We've talked a lot about why a lot of the proposed solutions don't work. We've we've got a square uh, a circle here, which is we've got on one hand these school shootings are a disgrace. We all want to do something to protect kids, but also Americans have a fundamental constitutional right to keep and bear arms that cannot be infringed. How do we reconcile those, and what are some things that can be done? to positive steps that could be taken to to protect our children without infringing on the rights of millions of law-abiding citizens who carry weapons for protection and other purposes that the Constitution guarantees them the right to do. Well, two thoughts come to mind. I mean, the first question is, are we focusing on mass shootings or are we focusing on gun crime? Because those are actually two different things. And generally, it's different people who are committing those particular both bad actions. Once again, to mention Kevin Williamson, he likes to point out is if you look at gun crime, particularly in inner cities, particularly Chicago cases like that, and you look at somebody who is a convicted felon and yet they have a gun and they're committing a shooting or 
robbing someone or something like that. They often have, the gun that they have often is not in their name. They have used what is called a straw buyer. And the straw buyer is generally someone they know, who they trust, who does not have a criminal record and who is generally, you know, so it's legal for that person to purchase the firearm. There's nothing that would trigger anything in the national instant check system. Sometimes it is a brother, a nephew. In some cases that Kevin likes to point out is that they're grandmothers. They go to their grandmother and they say they need a gun for protection. And the kindly grandmother who does not want her grandson to be shot in a, you know, believes that they live in a dangerous neighborhood, goes to the gun store, purchases the gun. Maybe the, the grandson gives him the money or something like that. And now the young man has a firearm, which he then uses, you know, in, in some sort of crime or something like that. So here's like, so you have a prosecutor, you, you, you catch somebody, you, you put them in, they have a gun, they don't have the gun, it's not in their name, you're prosecuting for that crime, you're prosecuting them probably for illegal possession. But now you have the question of this person who purchased a gun for a felon. That's a crime. But a lot of prosecutors don't like doing that because, Kevin says, they don't like the idea of putting grandmothers and innocent nephews, innocent brothers, someone who's basically not committed a violent crime. You don't want to put them behind bars. Now, Kevin makes the counter argument. He says, no, no, you put somebody's grandmother behind bars, you're going to get a lot of attention. You're, you're going to send a signal far and wide across those streets that you don't have your grandmother purchase a gun for you so that you can have one because she could end up going to jail along with you if you use that gun in a crime. I do think the reluctance to prosecute straw buyers has been a major problem here. And the second thing that kind of comes out is National Instant Check Program. Plug in your data and they have, it sends it off to the government. The government's checking this. Sometimes they check the state agencies and the state instead. But they have three days to reply. Some gun stores, if they don't get a reply in three days, will not sell you the gun. There are the ones that will. So there's a certain amount, not a ton. I think like a couple hundred a year of people who fill out the form. No answer is said in three days. The gun store decides to go through with the sale. Legally, they're allowed to do that. And then the feds finally get around to checking and saying, oh, uh, this person did have a, a criminal record. We can't, you know, that person is not allowed to purchase a firearm. As far as we can tell, the government does not spend any time going after those people. And they've already committed a crime. Not only have they committed a crime, and you know they've committed a crime, you have their home address. This has to be the easiest slam dunk for law enforcement there that there possibly could be. But I don't know whether it's a lack of resources or they don't want to knock on the door of a guy who, who you know, has a, for whatever reason, that's not something that they're focusing on. And that I think strikes me as you want to talk about the lowest hanging fruit of taking guns out of the hands of people who should not have them. The list of home addresses of people who have done this seems like a really good and easy way to start. I think it's also safe to say the general cash bail reform and other ways in which somebody commits some sort of crime and ends up back on the street within a short period of time really is not good for, you know, it, it indicates a lack of seriousness about prosecuting gun violence. And by the way, and part of it is, is that to me, you know, you, you rob a place with a gun. You know, you didn't shoot anybody, you, nobody bled, nobody died, something like that, fine, but you've still could done something that could have led to somebody. You probably should be doing serious time for that in my book. I understand there's been this push towards criminal justice reform. My understanding was that, that was about like drug possession and, you know, less victimless crime. And, and this idea of we want to give second chances to people who screwed up, made bad decisions, were young, were naive, didn't realize what they were getting themselves into. But once you hurt somebody, well, I think you knew darn well. I think we all, all of us learning like around nursery school, you're not supposed to run around and hurt people. And if you run around and hurt some people with a gun, then yeah, I think you should probably be looking at it at prison time. So as much as I support anti-recidivism programs and other things designed to help people who've made terrible mistakes in their life and put them on the right path in life. I do think that violent crime is the sort of thing that should get you, you know, behind bars for a long stretch. I think probably both as a deterrent effect and as a, you know, as an appropriate punishment. And uh, I think if you did more of that, I think you'd have less of these cases in which a lot of these cases where you see somebody, it's, you know, you know, cases of murder, they have a long history of crimes and there kind of is this gradual escalation in the seriousness and level of violence involved. So those are the three places I would start. And I start, you know, none of them involve passing new laws. None of them involve, you know, Congress having to do anything. This is all just an allocation of resources that is right already existing there. I also do think I would like to see, again, it's not necessarily a legal change, but kind of this, this cultural psychological change, erring on the side of caution when there's a troubled teenager who may exhibit some of these ticking time bomb behaviors. So, 
exit question for me, and it's it's a hard one. You know, Mark just said, you know, yeah, okay, we understand. This isn't the problem. That isn't the problem. But there is a problem. What should we do? You laid out some ideas. Others have different ideas. But something has struck me in reading about this. And I, I want to read you a quote, actually, from Q&A that Kevin Williamson did with himself in National Review that you quoted, which was super interesting. And then a, just a short quote from Jonah Goldberg on the same topic. So Kevin says, the important variable does not seem to be guns. Americans shoot each other to death at a much higher rate than do citizens of most other countries. But they also stab each other to death beat each other to death, burn each other to death much more frequently than do citizens of other countries. In fact, the number of murders committed by Americans armed with nothing more than their bare hands each year exceeds the number of murders committed by Americans with so-called assault rifles. The United States has unusually high rates of criminal violence across the board rather than an unusually high rate of gun-related violence. But his conclusion, the problem with America isn't that it is full of guns. The problem with America is that it is full of Americans. Now, you know, this is a hard one, but, and Jonah Goldberg, our, our friend and colleague and your former colleague, wrote something not dissimilar. He said, you know, he's talking about putting rocks in the stream of violence to kind of stop it and putting bigger rocks in the stream in order to stop. And he said, but maybe the problem is the river itself. Evil is real. You know, that's my question. Why? Why Why is this a problem? Why are we like this? There are countries with very high levels of gun ownership, Switzerland, Israel, and you don't see people going home and shooting up their school. Have you thought about this? It really has troubled me much more than understanding what an AR-15 is. As you're reading that off, I was reminded of a point about the red flag laws that I probably ought to mention before we finish comes from my good friend, Cam Edwards, who was on NRA TV for a lot of years and now writes for Bearing Arms, who's a little more skeptical of red flag laws than my friend David French is. And one of the things he points out is that pretty much there are 19 states that have enacted these red flag laws. And so the idea is somebody goes to the police and says, my ex-husband's going nuts or, or you know, something that represents, you know, you know, they go to a judge, the judge concurs, and they say, you know what, because we think this person is a threat to themselves or a threat to others, we're taking away their firearms. Cops go up to the door, they have the warrant, they go, they take the guns. And as far as the government is concerned, our job is done. Cam points out there's no mandatory counseling, there's no mandatory mental health evaluation, there's no, you know, that person is still capable of taking a kitchen knife and stabbing someone. That person is still capable of taking a car and running someone down. There's, in other words, nothing's been done about the potential violent, you know, impulse to harm others. All we've done is take away the gun. Now, does that, you know, is gun the easiest way to kill lots of people? Yeah. You know, are we really, you know, concerned about gun violence after an event like Uvalde? Absolutely. But I think most of us would agree the job is at best half done when you take away the firearms from somebody dangerous, but leave them with that murderous impulse or, or scary impulse or violent outbursts or something like that. So I, I think, you know, we talk about that nature of evil, right? This idea of where does it come from? This idea of lashing out, this idea of, Violence is the answer. And I, I, you know, thinking back to that Columbine, you know, mentioning having two teenage sons, we're doing fine if uh, Fairfax County Public Schools are watching this or listening to this, you know, and all that stuff. But I, I do think we've kind of reached this, as I mentioned, there was this ideation, right? This idea that, that all of a sudden the problems of the Columbine shooters being bullied and feeling like outsiders that's really unfortunate, but I suspect many people listening to this podcast would say, God, I remember being bullied in school. And God, I remember being in high school and feeling like nobody, I had no friends and nobody understood me and nobody liked me. And all. Like, that's kind of that. Some of that's just, just kind of like woven into the fabric of being a teenager uh, of, you know, everything from hormonal surges to the pressures of high school to things like that. There's this old saying, you know, tough times don't last, tough people do, right? And this idea that everybody goes through hardship. I do wonder a couple of things. The first is, does, I don't know whether it's mass media, I don't know whether it's social media, what creates this perception that I've got unique problems, but everybody else is doing fine, and that there's something uniquely wrong with me, there's something uniquely uh, troubled about me. I can't, there, there's no hope for me. We've all seen the the commercials, I think this was for, um, for gay teenagers, but I think I'd like to see this message for all teenagers, life does get better. 
life is not necessarily the isolation and peer pressure and all the other problems that come with high school. Um, in fact, on YouTube, there's an absolutely terrific kind of parody series depicting the jocks and popular kids announcing to, you know, of past years, telling jocks and popular kids of today, it doesn't get better. In fact, your life is going to be kind of sad and low. You know, you're, you'll have peaked in high school and nothing gets better. So I'd like to give every every teenager, every kid in America a recognition that whatever whatever is bedeviling you, whatever is you causing you these problems at age 15, 16, 17, 18, kiddo, life goes on and you're going to be okay. You know, at some point, but probably by the time you, you break into the 20s, your life will be something that you'll find some great love of your life. You'll find some great job, something in college. Ideally, if you go to college, will will inspire you or trade school. Something's going to come along that's going to make your life feel like it's worth living. And that idea of lashing out and trying to kill all your classmates will seem like the crazy idea it is. How do we get that message into teenagers' heads? I don't know. And maybe some of these issues are you know, biochemistry and stuff like that. It's not the matter of that. But I do know, to, you know one, School counselors say they are dealing with more problems like this than ever before, probably, you know, exacerbated by the isolation of the pandemic. And two, I think the New York Times had this kind of terrifying article that basically suggested just about every therapist in the country is book solid. And a lot of them are book solid with kids and teenagers. Okay, the school closures were an absolutely terrible idea. I can understand why we were freaking out in March 2020 and maybe into April 2020. But I think this this hurt us. Uh, we're we're going to be living with the consequences of this for a long, long time. I mean, Jim, just a, a quick follow up. I mean, of course you're right, and you know I have kids in Fairfax County as well. Mark has as teenagers. I think I think we all agree with you about the massive harm that's been done to our young people and the the larger psychological issues as well. The elevation of victimhood to sky high levels as an art in this country is a real problem. But the guy who went and shot his doctor and a whole bunch of people in his doctor's office yesterday wasn't a kid, right? He had bought a handgun a few days before and then he went back and got an AR-15 and then he came in, unfortunately, and then he came in and he shot everybody. And you know, not everybody who's killing lots of people is a teenager. And, and all those people who aren't doing it with guns are going in you know, and strangling people and lighting them on fire per Kevin's litany. I don't expect you to have an answer to this because A, we don't have three martinis and B, it's too hard a question to answer on a podcast, but it is something we really... And I'll ask it anyway. (laughs) No, I'm not asking it. All I'm saying is we have a problem that none of these little recipes that, you know, liberals have or suburban moms have or the president has or, or we have are working. And it is something for us to think about. I'm really glad you didn't phrase it. Jim, 30 seconds. Why does evil exist? Sorry, I would have needed I would have needed David French for that. <laughs> anyway, Mark, your exit. Sorry. No, sorry. I just I, I have a dozen questions I could keep answering you, but you've already been incredibly generous with your time. So thank you, thank you, Jim, for for joining us on the program. We really appreciate it. Well, appreciate you guys having me. Oh no, thank you truly, and from me as well, who did ask you a lot of existential questions. But you know, this is this is the kind of thing that prompts existential questions. All right, Danny, let's talk about the Constitution. My right to hunt is in danger. You're lucky that we're recording this over the internet and I'm not next to you. Or <laughs> <laughs> I would use my right to, <laughs> to be part of a well-regulated militia. Right to, to slap you. To swat you with my, with my gun. <laughs> uh, listen, so as people can hear, you know, I think there are a lot of questions to answer. I think that there are things to debate here. But I do think that if you want to talk about actually getting to the heart of this, all of this sort of ankle biting around the edges of gun regulation is actually not going to solve a lot of these problems. If people really want to make the case that Americans should not own these arms, and I think there are a lot of people who believe that, then there should be a move to repeal the Second Amendment. Now, you know, you're going to laugh at me, but we've amended the Constitution before. We've amended aspects of the Constitution that uh, were objectionable from the founding. We've given minorities equal rights. There was a move, unsuccessful, I should add, (laughs) to give women so-called equal rights under the Equal Rights Amendment. We've given women the vote. We've remedied many things, and we can repeal the Second Amendment as a legal matter. Do you want to repeal the Second Amendment? I think that there are more common sense ways of addressing these issues. But I will say that if you are a gun control absolutist, and there are many, I'm not one, 
Obviously, you're not one, but there are many people out there who absolutely are gun control absolutists. Their correct move should not be to add five minutes to a background check or make sure that you can only kill people with a 22. But you should want to repeal the Second Amendment. It's kind of weird to me that there is no effort to do so. And of course, you and I know why. Well, because they misread the Second Amendment. They hang on this militia clause. I, I just want to quote you current U.S. law. I want to quote. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's, that's not why. It's because it'll fail. So, Danny, when you say repeal the Second Amendment, I say in the words of Dirty Harry, make my day. <laughs> Go ahead. Try it. It would never pass in a heartbeat in this country. And be, and if you wanted to polarize our politics more than they already are, try to have a bunch of big city liberals repeal the Second Amendment and take away the guns of the, uh, the majority of the American heartland. It's an absolute failed cause, which is why they don't do it and why they don't try to do it. Right. No, I mean, look, that that is exactly right. And after being a difficult suburban mom voter and talking about my concerns about this, let me just make a couple of political points in the other direction. Barack Obama was president of the United States for eight years. For at least a quarter of that time, he had super majorities in the United States Congress. And yet during that time, there was no meaningful gun control legislation. I think that tells you everything you need to know about Republican obstructionism and about the true position of most of our members of Congress, which is that there are plenty of Democrats that do not support the kind of gun control legislation that is now being bandied about by the likes of the far left. That is exactly right. And the Supreme Court has also expanded gun rights or ruled in a way that is affirmed the fact that gun ownership is a fundamental individual right, which is enshrined in our Constitution. And just so people understand this, I want to come back to this militia clause one more time, because whether you know it or not, people, you're in the militia. According to U.S. law, 10 U.S. Code 246, Militia Composition and Classes, this is what it reads. The militia of the United States consists of all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age and except as provided in Section 313 of Title 32, under 45 years of age, who have made a declaration of intention to become citizens of the United States and of female citizens of the United States who are members of the National Guard. So if you are a male in this country, according to U.S. law, you are a member of the militia. And if you're a female, if you're a member of the National Guard uh, or the Naval Militia, then you're a member of the militia. So, Mark, you're for, you're more than 45. Are you therefore not allowed to hold guns? Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you lose your right to have a gun because you're not a member of the militia. The purpose of the Second Amendment is because an armed population is a free population. Our founders believed it was fundamental to our freedom in order to prevent insurrection, in order to prevent foreign invasion, and in order to prevent tyranny. I got I got to say, looking at Syria, I do not think to myself an armed population is a free population. Oh, I'm sorry. You think you think the only the Syrian regime should have guns? You think that the opposition in Syria shouldn't be armed? I think I'm sad when I see ISIS and Al-Qaeda yeah. armed, Mark, uh, as it happens. And I think you probably agree with me about that. I don't think guns equal freedom. I think free Syrians should have weapons to fight Al-Qaeda and to fight Assad. Thank God there's no there was no gun control in Ukraine because it took Joe Biden two months to provide them with the kind of weapons they need to fight the Russians. So they were handing out weapons to everybody in Ukraine armed population. It's still true to this day. We may not be threatened by a tyrannical regime here in the United States at this very moment, but there are plenty of countries around the world where we're seeing that an armed population is necessary to the security of a free state. I think the Ukrainians think they're, they're pretty glad that they have guns right now. Well, we've gotten a little bit of field of our conversation about the school shooting, I'm afraid, and probably been a little bit lighthearted in our conversation here at the end. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I think the problem for us is that, and I, I said this when we were talking to Jim as well, part of the problem is that we're always having this conversation in the wake of a tragedy. And our response to it is always to try to mitigate that specific tragedy. When the right answer, you know, as, as you said, is for sensible people to sit down and set aside their politics and try and deal with a myriad of the issues. And you're right. Policing is a big part of it. Mental health is a big part of it. Reporting people who are actually dangerous to their community is a part of it, even if it's just to result in them getting the kind of mental health support that they might need. You started out by saying it is just 
sickening to see these things happen. And of course, no matter what your position is on guns, no matter what you think uh, it is, the reality is that all of those kids lost their lives. And it is a national disgrace and a national tragedy that we are incapable of having a serious and effective conversation in its wake. Well, here's the reason for that, Danny, is that, I mean, I agree with you. I started out by saying what happened in Uvalde is sick and we need to do something about it. If you start the conversation with, we need to take away people's guns, you're not having a serious conversation. You're not acknowledging the fact that it's a constitutional right to get to keep and bear arms. Removing guns from law-abiding citizens off the table, there's a lot that can be done. And we've discussed some of it today. There's a lot of steps that you can take to make kids safer, to prevent these kinds of shootings, to deal with the mental health crisis, to harden schools, to fund the police, because the majority of these shootings don't happen in schools. They happen on the streets in, uh, of major cities, which are absolutely overrun. We have the worst, as we discussed in a recent episode, we have the worst crime wave in the United States since the 1990s happening right now. Elect prosecutors who actually prosecute gun crimes and murders and shootings and the precursors to those, uh, the, the robberies and the shoplifting and all the rest that's taking place instead of putting those people back out on the street. There's a lot that can be done. But if you start with the premise that taking away people's guns is a solution to this problem, then we're not going to get very far. <sighs> Sigh. Folks, thanks for listening. If you have any ideas, if you have any comments, don't hesitate to share with us. We're always interested in what you have to say. Subscribe, review, share, and take a look at our Substack. We lay all of this out in slightly summarized form for your enjoyment. Take care. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.